the thunder mutters. A poetry and music podcast presented by Becky Dello and Adam Horowitz. Episode 4 Percy Bysshe Shelley Hello and welcome to episode 4 of The Thunder Mutters. I'm Adam Horowitz. And I'm Becky Dello. And this week we're back with an interim episode looking at the works of Percy Bysshe Shelley and tunes from the time. Can I just say a massive thank you to everyone who has gone to our Ko-fi page to put some money in the hat, so to speak. It just helps pay for our hosting fees and so on. So thank you for those who have done that. And if you do feel moved to do so, the website is... ko-fi.com forward slash... The thunder mutters. Now, I'm not especially versed in poetry. See what I did there, Adam? So I did a bit of research about Shelley and discovered that Queen Mab is one of his most well-known poems. Would that be true? It's certainly one of the most famous verse dramas he, he wrote. It's an extraordinary piece. I looked to try and possibly do an extract for it for this episode, but it was too difficult I don't believe that was too difficult for you, Adam. Not too difficult to read, but too difficult to uh, take a, a decent section out of that made sense on its own. Right, I see. Well, in honour of that poem, I found a tune also named Queen Mab, which came from a mid-18th century stage play, uh, which we use as the introduction, which is then followed by the first poem. Which is To Jane the Invitation, one of Shelley's bounding and joyous love lyrics. I follow this by an aptly named tune, Young Jane. I do two versions of this throughout the episode. One is a lilting, slightly up-tempo jig which is often known as the gallant hussar and used as a morris tune and a more sedate air-like version i found the tune on the traditional tune archive which is another great resource and the details are in the episode introduction online and the gallant hussar is followed by to a skylark a longer and extraordinary poem of shelley's addressing the skylark in the most ecstatic way imaginable I follow this with one of my favourite Irish slow airs called Lark in the Clear Air. And again, that's followed by Two, a very short, fragmentary poem with some of Shelley's most famous lines in it. Uh, I didn't know that they were his most famous lines, but some I was of. really um, touched by this poem. Some of, right. Uh, yeah, I loved, I loved this. And I chose a tune titled Love Forever to reflect the emotions. This is from William Vickers' manuscript, the arrangement that I do, which is dated 1770. Vickers is thought to have been a keen fiddler from Northumberland, although the tune obviously travelled. 
It appears in a London manuscript book as well, which belonged to a man called Thomas Hammersley, dated in 1790. Which is followed by Mont Blanc, one of Shelley's most famous poems, a long, extraordinary address to the great mountain, which is then interspersed with a couple of tunes throughout because it is quite so long. So the first tune I play in Mont Blanc is called The Fields of Frost and Snow. This is from Young's Dancing Master, dated 1710. And then I play Drive the Cold Winter Away, which is in several printed publications, but particularly Playford's 1651 Dancing Master. And it's arguably related to an earlier tune from the 16th century, so possibly sort of quite historic, this tune. And it's Adam's favourite tune, I think. He always gets quite excited when I play this. It's true. <laughs> Following Mont Blanc, I play a tune which makes me smile. It's called Bob and Joan, which makes me think of Terry and June. Actually, it's quite an old tune with many similar sounding names like Bob and John, Bobbing Joan, and it's likely to be a mishearing of Bohan John, which is said to be the nickname of an earl back in the 18th century, found in both the Vickers and the Winders manuscript books. This is followed by The Flower That Smiles Today, a rather bleak little poem of Shelley's. The next poem makes reference to an old, mad, blind, despised and dying king, which intrigued me and I wanted to find out who Shelley was talking about. It appears it is King George III, so I went off on a path to find a tune related to him. And I found one in William Clark's 1770 manuscript from Lincoln. I think the manuscript is now at the Lincoln Records Office, but you can actually look at it online. The details are in the introduction. And I, I've copied a page of the tune and put it in um, the episode text. The tune is called King George III's Minuet, and I assume it means it was one of his favourites rather than that he composed it. I recorded two versions for Adam to choose, one more or less as written in D major, and then one transposed into the minor key to try and reflect the mood that I felt Shelley was conveying in the poem. Uh, Adam chose the sad, melancholic one. It appears to have been a really popular tune, both in England and America, as it's in many American manuscript copybooks, as well as several in England. And the poem Becky's referring to is England in 1819, one of Shelley's more overtly political poems, one that wasn't published in his lifetime because it was seen as too controversial. And it is, yes, referring to the times, which seem kind of apposite now as well. Yes, I thought that when I was reading it. Sandwiched between that poem and another one which relates to a king, I played the tune When the King Came O'er the Water, which is also known as Boyne Water. I hope I've pronounced that correctly, which is thought to date from the end of the 17th century and was also used by Robert Burns as a tune to one of his poems. And the final poem in the sequence is, and it's Shelley, and you can't really get away from this with Shelley, Ozymandias, one of the most famous sonnets going, which follows, I think, very neatly on from England in 1819 thematically. And I close the episode with the slow air version of Young Jane discussed above. So that's the running order for the set. So without further ado, here's Becky playing Queen Mab.
best and brightest come away. Fairer far than this fair day, which, like thee to those in sorrow, comes to bid a sweet good morrow to the rough year just awake in its cradle on the break. The brightest hour of unborn spring, through the winter wandering, found, it seems, the halcyon morn to hoar February born. Bending from heaven in azure mirth, it kissed the forehead of the earth, and smiled upon the silent sea, and bade the frozen streams be free, and waked to music all their fountains, and breathed upon the frozen mountains, and like a prophetess of May strewed flowers upon the barren way, making the wintry world appear like one on whom thou smilest, dear. Away, away from men and towns to the wild wood and the downs, to the silent wilderness where the soul need not repress its music lest it should not find an echo in another's mind. While the touch of nature's art harmonizes heart to heart, I leave this notice on my door for each accustomed visitor. I am gone into the fields to take what this sweet hour yields. Reflection, you may come to-morrow, sit by the fireside with sorrow, you with the unpaid bill despair, you tiresome verse reciter care. I will pay you in the grave, death will listen to your stave. Expectation, too, be off, to-day is for itself enough. Hope in pity mock not woe, with smiles nor follow where I go. Long having lived on thy sweet food, at length I find one moment's good after long pain. With all your love, this you never told me of. Radiant sister of the day, awake, arise and come away to the wild woods and the plains, and the pools where winter rains image all their roof of leaves, where the pine its garland weaves, of sapless green and ivy dun, round stems that never kiss the sun, where the lawns and pastures be, and the sandhills of the sea, where the melting hoar-frost wets the daisy star that never sets, and windflowers and violets which yet join not scent to hue, crown the pale year weak and new, when the night is left behind in the deep east dun and blind, and the blue noon is over us, and the multitudinous billows murmur at our feet, where the earth and ocean meet, and all things seem only one in the universal sun. <laughs> Hail to thee, blithe spirit. Bird thou never wert, That from heaven or near it Pourest thy full heart In profuse strains of unpremeditated art. Higher still and higher From the earth thou springest, Like a cloud of fire, The blue deep thou wingest, And singing still dost soar, And soaring ever singest. In the golden lightning of the sunken sun, 
O'er which clouds are brightening thou dost float and run, Like an unbodied joy whose race is just begun. The pale purple even melts around thy flight, Like a star of heaven in the broad daylight thou art unseen, But yet I hear thy shrill delight, Keen as are the arrows of that silver sphere, Whose intense lamp narrows in the white dawn clear, Until we hardly see, we feel that it is there. All the earth and air with thy voice is loud, As, when night is bare from one lonely cloud, The moon rains out her beams, and heaven is overflowed. What thou art, we know not. What is most like thee? From rainbow clouds there flow not drops so bright to see As from thy presence showers a rain of melody. Like a poet hidden in the light of thought, Singing hymns unbidden till the world is wrought, To sympathy with hopes and fears it heeded not. Like a high-born maiden in a palace tower, Soothing her love-laden soul in secret hour With music sweet as love, which overflows her bower. Like a glowworm golden in a dell of dew, Scattering unbeholden its ethereal hue Among the flowers and grass which screen it from the view. Like a rose embowered in its own green leaves, By warm winds deflowered till the scent it gives Makes faint with too much sweet those heavy-winged thieves. Sound of vernal showers on the twinkling grass, Rain awakened flowers all that ever was, Joyous and clear and fresh, Thy music doth surpass. Teach us, sprite or bird, what sweet thoughts are thine. I have never heard praise of love or wine That panted forth a flood of rapture so divine. Chorus hymeneal, or triumphal chant Matched with thine would be all but an empty vaunt, A thing wherein we feel there is some hidden want. What objects are the fountains of thy happy strain? What fields or waves or mountains what shapes of sky or plain, what love of thine own kind, what ignorance of pain. With thy clear, keen joyance, languor cannot be, shadow of annoyance never came near thee. Thou lovest, but ne'er knew love's sad satiety. Waking or asleep, thou of death must deem things more true and deep than we mortals dream. Or how could thy notes flow in such a crystal stream? We look before and after, and pine for what is not. Our sincerest laughter with some pain is fraught. Our sweetest songs are those that tell of saddest thought. Yet if we could scorn hate and pride and fear, If we were things born not to shed a tear, I know not how thy joy we ever should come near. Better than all measures of delightful sound, Better than all treasures that in books are found, Thy skill to poet were, thou scorner of the ground. Teach me half the gladness that thy brain must know, Such harmonious madness from my lips would flow. The world should listen then, 
as I am listening now. Music, when soft voices die, vibrates in the memory. Odors, when sweet violets sicken, live within the sense they quicken. Rose leaves, when the rose is dead, are heaped for the beloved's bed. And so thy thoughts, when thou art gone, love itself shall slumber on. The everlasting universe of things flows through the mind and rolls its rapid waves, now dark, now glittering, now reflecting gloom, now lending splendor, where from secret springs the source of human thought its tribute brings, of waters with a sound but half its own, such as a feeble brook will oft assume in the wild woods among the mountains lone, where waterfalls around it leap forever, where woods and winds contend, and a vast river over its rocks ceaselessly bursts and raves. Thus thou, ravine of Arve, dark, deep ravine, thou many-coloured, many-voiced vale, over whose pines and crags and caverns sail fast cloud-shadows and sunbeams, awful scene, where power in likeness of the Arve comes down from the ice-gulfs that gird his secret throne, bursting through these dark mountains like the flame of lightning through the tempest. Thou dost lie, thy giant brood of pines around thee clinging, children of elder time, in whose devotion the chainless winds still come and ever came to drink their odours, and their mighty swinging to hear an old and solemn harmony. Thine earthly rainbows stretched across the sweep of the ethereal waterfall, whose veil robes some unsculptured image, the strange sleep 
which, when the voices of the desert fail, wraps all in its own deep eternity. Thy caverns echoing to the Arve's commotion, a loud, lone sound no other sound can tame. Thou art pervaded with that ceaseless motion, thou art the path of that unresting sound, dizzy ravine. And when I gaze on thee I seem as in a trance sublime and strange to muse on my own separate fantasy, my own, my human mind, which passively now renders and receives fast influencing, holding an unremitting interchange with the clear universe of things around. One legion of wild thoughts whose wandering wings now float above thy darkness, and now rest where that or thou art no unbidden guest, in the still cave of the witch poesy, seeking among the shadows that pass by ghosts of all things that are, some shade of thee, some phantom, some faint image, till the breast from which they fled recalls them, thou art there. Some say that gleams of a remoter world visit the soul in sleep, that death is slumber, and that its shapes the busy thoughts outnumber of those who wake and live. I look on high. Has some unknown omnipotence unfurled the veil of life and death? Or do I lie in dream? And does the mightier world of sleep spread far around and inaccessibly its circles? For the very spirit fails, driven like a homeless cloud from steep to steep that vanishes among the viewless gales. Far, far above, piercing the infinite sky, Mont Blanc appears, still, snowy and serene. Its subject mountains, their unearthly forms, pile around it, ice and rock, broad veils between of frozen floods, unfathomable deeps, blue as the overhanging heaven, that spread and wind among the accumulated steeps, a desert peopled by the storms alone, save when the eagle brings some hunter's bone, and the wolf tracks her there, how hideously its shapes are heaped around, rude, bare and high, ghastly and scarred and riven. Is this the scene where the old earthquake demon taught her young ruin? Were these their toys? Or did a sea of fire envelop once this silent snow? None can reply. All seems eternal now. The wilderness has a mysterious tongue which teaches awful doubt or faith so mild, so solemn, so serene that man may be but for such faith with nature reconciled. Thou hast a voice, great mountain, to repeal large codes of fraud and woe, not understood by all, but which the wise and great and good interpret 
or make felt or deeply feel. fields, the lakes, the forests and the streams, ocean and all the living things that dwell within the daedal earth, lightning and rain, earthquake and fiery flood and hurricane, the torpor of the year when feeble dreams visit the hidden buds, or dreamless sleep holds every future leaf and flower, the bound with which from that detested trance they leap, the works and ways of man their death and birth, and that of him, and all that his may be. All things that move and breathe with toil and sound are born and die, revolve, subside and swell. Power dwells apart in its tranquillity, remote, serene and inaccessible. And this, the naked countenance of earth on which I gaze, even these primeval mountains teach the adverting mind. The glaciers creep like snakes that watch their prey, from their far fountains slow rolling on. There many a precipice frost and the sun in scorn of mortal power have piled, dome, pyramid and pinnacle, a city of death distinct with many a tower and wall impregnable of beaming ice. Yet not a city, but a flood of ruin is there that from the boundaries of the sky rolls its perpetual stream. Vast pines are strewing its destined path, or in the mangled soil branchless and shattered stand. The rocks, drawn down from yon remotest waste, have overthrown the limits of the dead and living world, never to be reclaimed. The dwelling-place of insects, beasts and birds becomes its spoil their food and their retreat forever gone, so much of life and joy is lost. The race of man flies far in dread, his work and dwelling vanish like smoke before the tempest's stream, and their place is not known. Below, vast caves shine in the rushing torrent's restless gleam, from which those secret chasms in tumult welling meet in the vale, and one majestic river, the breath and blood of distant lands forever, rolls its loud waters to the ocean waves, breathes its swift vapours to the circling air. Mont Blanc yet gleams on high. The power is there, the still and solemn power of many sights and many sounds, and much of life and death in the calm darkness of the moonless nights, in the lone glare of day, the snows descend upon that mountain. None beholds them there, nor when the flakes burn in the sinking sun, or the starbeams dart through them. Winds contend silently there, and heap the snow with breath rapid and strong, but silently. Its home the voiceless lightning in these solitudes keeps innocently, 
and like vapour broods over the snow. The secret strength of things which governs thought and to the infinite dome of heaven is as a law inhabits thee. And what were thou and earth and stars and sea if to the human mind's imaginings silence and solitude were vacancy? Flower that smiles today, tomorrow dies. All that we wish to stay tempts and then flies. What is this world's delight? Lightning that mocks the night, brief even as bright. Virtue, how frail it is. Friendship, how rare. Love, how it sells poor bliss for proud despair. But we, though soon they fall, survive their joy, and all which ours we call. Whilst skies are blue and bright, whilst flowers are gay, whilst eyes that change ere night make glad the day, whilst yet the calm hours creep, dream thou, and from thy sleep then wake to weep. mad, blind, despised and dying king. Princes, the dregs of their dull race, who flow through public scorn, mud from a muddy spring. Rulers who neither see nor feel nor know, but leech-like to their fainting country cling, till they drop, blind in blood without a blow. A people starved and stabbed in the untilled field. An army, whom liberticide and prey makes as a two-edged sword to all who wield, golden and sanguine laws which tempt and slay, religion Christless, godless, a book sealed, a senate, time's worst statute unrepealed, a graves from which a glorious phantom may burst to illumine our tempestuous day.
I met a traveller from an antique land, who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half-sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. that was Becky playing us out with Young Jane. As usual, I've listed my sources and references on the episode text in the introduction. Uh, so you can go there and see where I've got the information from. Also, I've left a link there to go and look at the actual manuscript of William Clark, which is online. And I've put the, the actual page of King George III's minuet up as well. I always find that seeing the writing and notation creates a sort of tangible link to the musician who created and likely played these tunes several hundred years ago. So I find it fascinating. I don't read music and I also find it fascinating. It's wonderful to see these images. It does give a real, as you say, tangible grasp on the past. They're like artefacts that have been hidden and are now with, with access to the internet are being dug up brought to light exposed it's wonderful yeah okay in a fortnight's time we'll be back with john clare's tune book and john clare's june from the shepherd's calendar following that we're doing our special episode where we are using contributions from you the listeners we've already received a great number of poems from numerous poets and a few tunes so we, there's time if anyone has recordings of tunes of Clare's from his tune book or recordings of poems they've set to music of Clare's or any response to John Clare that they might want there is time please send it in to us at thethundermutters at gmail.com or get in touch with us via our Facebook page at The Thunder Mutters or our Twitter handle at Thundermutters we hope you've enjoyed the show. We've enjoyed making it. If you would like to put some money in the hat, then please visit our Kofi page, which is www.kofi, that's ko-fi.com forward slash the thunder mutters. See you next time. And in the meantime, we're going to play you out with a short excerpt from one of the poets 
who has responded to John Clare. So here's Ella Duffy reading her poem. Starlings Nesting There will always be starlings in the roof, but here's a tree hollow, wrecked with shell. Shock of young hunger, gold rush lily beaks. If the cat could pour itself through, one pour before the other's damage, this would be a different spring. Not the poplar's curling sound of mothers, hatchlings, grey and pink and grotesque, who'll grow out of need, leave their nests to the ants, shifting threads of worm to their own haunts, this is the spring we came home and stayed. <laughs>